welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is the place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Ian Mortimer, co-manager of the Guinness Global Innovators Fund. Ian joined Guinness Asset Management in December 2006 and is also co-manager of the Guinness Global Equity Income Fund. Prior to joining Guinness, Ian completed a Doctor of Philosophy in Experimental Physics at Christchurch University of Oxford and graduated in 2006. Ian graduated from University College London with a first class honours master's degree in physics in 2003. He has completed the investment management certificate and is a level two candidate in the CFA programme. So to start at the very beginning, as they say, could you briefly tell us uh, something about the, the strategy and objective for the fund? Yeah, so I guess the idea behind the uh, the Guinness Global Innovators Fund um, is really trying to uh, sort of invest in companies um, that are, um, you know, are backed by secular growth themes. So businesses that have sort of good, strong pathways for growth in essentially innovative areas. Um, and buy those companies at reasonable valuations, uh, and ultimately uh, try and get a you know positive total return over the longer term uh, by capturing those companies where the growth is maybe going to be higher uh, than maybe the market expects today, uh, and therefore uh, essentially outperform the market. Okay, and um, with regards to the fund, what are the sector and uh, geographical allocations? Yeah, so we run the fund uh, as a 30 stock equally weighted portfolio is the first thing to note, um, which is somewhat different, I think, to, to how other people run um, portfolios. Um, that means we've got a pretty concentrated portfolio, really very much of our best ideas. Um, and in terms of our sort of allocations, it's really dr driven by where we're seeing those best ideas. So really from the companies themselves, the bottom up thinking, as opposed to sort of top down views. Um, and where that's generally led us uh, from uh, a sector point of view is clearly if we're looking for these kind of innovative businesses doing something different or better, uh, more innovative than their peers, we do find a lot of opportunities in the IT space, for example. Um, you know, and all across the different uh, aspects of IT, whether it's semiconductors, technology and hardware, or indeed the software companies. Uh, so today our allocation to IT is around half the portfolio. It's about 50%. However, you know, we're keen to emphasize that um, you know, innovation is not just a information technology phenomenon. Yes, there's lots of innovation in that area. But what we find and we think is very important is that you can actually find innovative businesses across many other sectors. Um, so we also own companies in things like communication services. Healthcare is an area where you know, we've seen lots of good opportunities, whether it's medical devices or you know, drugs manufacturers, for example. Um, industrials is a really interesting area for us today. Uh, we're in about 10% of the portfolio uh, in that area, which you wouldn't necessarily as uh, associate historically with innovation. But actually, when you see new manufacturing, robotics, maybe the use of data to improve um, services within um, you know, that uh, area, uh, we find a lot of good opportunities, in fact, and sort of old kind of industrial businesses evolving and actually taking on technology to improve what they're doing um, is really interesting. Equally, we find um, you know things saying like consumer discretionary stocks. So some of the uh, maybe some of the branded businesses, things like Nike, for example, we own in our portfolio, as they're using new technologies, new manufacturing processes, 
and also doing more sort of direct to consumer to boost margins rather than necessarily using middlemen, for example, um, is again quite a sort of an innovative area, but quite different to, um, like I said, your sort of typical initial thought of, of, of IT. Um, however, I think it's worth noting as well what we generally don't invest in particularly, uh, and that would often be um, you know the kind of the commodity type stocks, the energies and materials where we don't see huge amounts of innovation, um, and other areas that may be more regulated, things like utilities or real estate businesses, uh, again generally don't sort of uh, pass our test for, for what we're looking for. Um, so from a sectoral point of view, that's where we are today, um, and then from a, a geographic point of view, it's actually quite similar. Um, to the, the MSCI world, which is our benchmark, where we've got approximately 70% in the US uh, with the balance in Europe, uh, Asia, Pacific, uh, and one or two emerging market companies in there as well. So you, you've already touched on this in, in terms of that last answer, but um, just to be clear, uh, the, the innovators, uh, as mentioned in the title of your fund, what, what does innovators mean to you? Yeah, I, I sort of, um, it's sort of, I guess, at the core of what we do. Um, I think it sort of does mean different things to different people. Uh, and I think the first thing to note is, you know, often people think innovation, they think small businesses, very early stage startup type companies. Um, and that is true, but that is not something we're particularly looking at. We're generally looking at larger companies, more established. Um, and although those early stage companies are uh, potentially innovative, the difficulty there is that, you know, to get a good result is quite difficult. The probability of finding or investing in very early stage companies um, is pretty low. The returns might be high, but the probability of achieving that is low. So we're generally looking at larger companies. So when we're talking about innovation, it could be, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a pure play company. So if you're saying like electric vehicles, for example, you might say, well, Tesla is the, you know, the go-to name and that clearly very innovative business. However, we might look at that and say, well, yeah, that's interesting, but maybe it's quite expensive because that's what everyone sees as the go-to name. Whereas we might look at it and say, well, we could buy a company like Infineon, for example, in Germany, and they make chips um, that go into electric vehicles. Um, they're not particularly expensive part, and they're not particularly, you know, um, sort of technologically advanced like an Intel, you know, like a CPU type chip. But they are exposed to that area, and they are sort of the market leader, and therefore they have, you know, lots of competitive advantages. And so what we're trying to do is take the kind of secular growth themes, big data, you know, electric vehicles, AI, robotics, you know, advanced healthcare, whatever it might be, and maybe cast a slightly wider net to find not only those sort of more pure play companies, but also companies that have maybe less in some more indirect exposure there, or maybe it's part of their business is very innovative, but maybe not the whole thing. Uh, and that innovative part may be misvalued by the by the market and therefore that's our opportunity to get access to those types of businesses so for us it's it's really kind of uh, a much broader uh, innovation in a much broader sense um kind of across different sectors different geographies and also kind of beyond maybe just some of those sort of as i say simple pure play type uh, companies that maybe spring to mind when you first mention um, innovation or a particular theme and, and as you say, it, in the, the word innovation does tend to draw one to think immediately of, of technology. Um, and you did say that, that obviously you, you've got a high percentage of your holdings leaning towards the technology space. So, so what else would fall into the um, innovation bucket, if you will, uh, that might not be directly technology related? Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, there's, you know, different areas. So the way we run the fund is ultimately we come up with approximately nine sort of 
secular growth themes that we kind of identify. Um, these evolve sort of relatively slowly. We're trying to find you know, typically themes that are already existing, but maybe you know could get much bigger or have a long, uh, potentially a long period where they can continue to grow. Uh, and then we're looking uh, for companies exposed to those themes, if you like. And the second part of our investment process then is to do the bottom-up stock selection and say, but of those interesting great businesses, which ones actually offer a good investment opportunity? Because I think that's the big thing you can often miss when you're doing sort of thematic investing. It's a great idea. It's super interesting. Uh, it's very exciting. Um, but if you either come in too late or something else usurps it, it's very difficult to get a good return. And ultimately, that's the game we're in. We're trying to create a portfolio to get the best risk-adjusted returns we can. Um, and going to back to your point in terms of the, the themes we're looking at, you know, the, the first theme is advanced healthcare. So that sort of covers things like biotech, genomics, and some of the medical device businesses as well. That's clearly you know, quite different to, as I say, like a software type company. There are things like, you know, artificial intelligence and big data, which will clearly encompass some of that. Um, but then there's also the uses of that. Um, so whether it's, um, you know, autonomous vehicles, LIDAR, and trying to work out um, you know, sort of how these things might work. Things like clean energy and sustainability is a theme that we're definitely getting uh, more interested in, um, sort of more broadly. Um, and, you know, things as I mentioned earlier, things like next generation consumers, for example. So whether that's um, e-commerce or you know, everything as a service or whether it's some healthy living or whether it's, again, sort of, you know, some of the brands that are doing sort of different things in terms of manufacturing. And again, then, you know, and finally, things like uh, in the industrial space. So I think we mentioned things like robotics, 3D printing, you know, improving logistics, for example, um, sensors around um, all of that. You know, and th these are all areas that maybe to some extent touch technology, but they're not sort of directly sort of in the technology sector, if you like. And, and with with that backdrop in mind, um, could you perhaps talk us through a, a couple of your top holdings or positions within the fund? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, because we have a um, an equally weighted portfolio, uh, it means all our stocks are around the same weight. So 30 stocks, each yeah. position is around 3.3% approximately. Uh, and so therefore, we don't really have that sort of our best idea is a 5% or 6%, whatever. So we're big believers in finding good businesses. Uh, but what we do think is that it's harder to know when those businesses will be rewarded by the market in terms of valuation, which implies some sort of timing, which is not necessarily what we think we can do successfully. So I think our approach at Guinness, these sort of equally weighted, concentrated portfolios, I think give you a good, uh, a good benefit across those. Um, but what I could mention, I guess, um, you know, in terms of sort of new positions we've added to the portfolio more recently, um, has been um, it happens to be two technology companies. So the first was uh, Taiwan Semiconductor. Uh, it's clearly a Taiwanese business. Um, you know, they're potentially the market leader in terms of global foundries. Um, and the semiconductor space is an area that we found really interesting and, and had quite a, a big investment, big uh, percentage of our fund invested in directly uh, for the last sort of two or three years. Because what we find interesting about that space is it, it, it more and more covers more and more of the areas we're looking at. So in terms of drivers, you know, the semiconductor industry used to be very cyclical um, because it was very much linked to the business cycle. So businesses, would they buy more computers or not, essentially? So therefore, it's a recession. You didn't and they'd have an oversupply and prices would drop and then the reverse would happen. And that would sort of create this very cyclical. What we're seeing now is the demand for chips from all sorts of different areas. Um, you know, all, the, all the things I was mentioning earlier all require uh, you know, some kind of semiconductor chip. So Taiwan Semiconductor sort of sits at the top of all of that. 
So there's um, there's sort of the market leading global foundry. So they essentially own the equipment uh, and, and and manufacture um, the semiconductors for company other companies who design them. So the fabulous companies design the sort of the intellectual property, if you like, and Taiwan Semiconductor actually goes and makes them for them. Uh, and that's a very technologically advanced business. They have a very large market share. They have invested huge amounts of capex to get to the where they are, and therefore that puts them, you know, with a very wide moat relative um, to their competitors. And we're seeing significant demand um, for their services, which we believe is, you know, going to be um, continued for a very long time. You've got China uh, trying to build up their own semiconductor industry. Uh, you've got America trying to bring it on shore, do it themselves as well. Uh, and if you look at all the um, uh, other businesses, they're investing significant amounts of capex. So that's a really interesting company for us. Uh, the second company we bought uh, is one I'm sure is very familiar to your to your listeners, which is Apple. Um, we actually only bought that a couple of weeks ago um, for the portfolio, um, and it is a it is a stock that we had owned previously um, in, in uh, uh, our strategy, uh, actually quite a significant number of years ago. But I think it's a good example um, of an opportunity in the market today in terms of what's been happening more recently. Um, and, you know, we've clearly seen through COVID uh, and then the early part of this year, once we saw, we saw the vaccine news in um, uh, November last year, a really big kind of cyclical rally, kind of the reflation trades, you know, stocks that are really underperformed, doing better, the really deep value type names really kind of rallying back very strongly the airlines, the cruise ships, whatever else it might be. Um, and I think when that happens, a lot of these really kind of good, large cap sort of tech businesses um, actually underperformed. You know, we'd seen Apple underperform by about 15% relative to benchmark over um, the period year to date. Um, and we felt that, you know, offered a, you know, it wasn't reflecting the, the strong growth that we could potentially see going forward. We're also noticing, you know, we're coming up to a new sort of new iPhone um, cycle, um, which I think could be more significant. Clearly, there's pent up demand uh, in terms of, um, you know, consumer spending, uh, and also, you know, technologically, I think this next cycle is maybe uh, slightly higher. And also, different to what Apple has been historically, is they've got that very large service uh, revenue now. So they're not just beholden on the sync on the iPhone and peripherals. Uh, in terms of hardware selling, they've actually got this really great growing, um, you know, high margin uh, service business um, that's really changing kind of the dynamic. And if you look at the amount of cash they're throwing off, you know, the, the buybacks they're doing, um, you know, is is extraordinary. You know, it's pushing sort of a hundred billion dollars. Uh, so there's this sort of big underlying driver, if you like, of the overall sort of fundamentals that the market is going to be seeing. Um, and so far, that that trade's been going really well. Um, I think you know, uh, I think just the other day. Um, I think the news this morning was talking about um, the, the whisper numbers for what it's worth and people saying in terms of the iPhone supply chain, uh, we're talking about you know, uh, sort of not, uh, increasing um, the order flow, if you like, from uh, sort of uh, by about sort of 15 to 20%, I think, in terms of the next iPhone cycle. So clearly Apple is seeing uh, potential for sort of further, further demand. So obviously you mentioned there the, um, the a couple of um, opportunities you had to, to slightly revise the portfolio. In, in terms of the last 18 months, which, which have obviously uh, been quite extraordinary, how have you found that the fund um, has been holding up? 
Yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's a great question, as you say. It's been a very difficult time you know, for all sorts of reasons, personal and uh, in markets. But if we sort of, you know, hopefully, you know, you and your listeners and everyone and their families are all um, keeping well and are safe. Um, but from a market perspective, um, we've been really pleased with how the funds performed, actually, um, because I think you could kind of split it into about sort of approximately three pieces currently, I think is the best way to think about it. So you sort of have, you know, last year, um, you know, clearly sort of massive market correction uh, because of COVID, it's huge uncertainty. Uh, and actually the fund held up reasonably well, it outperformed on the downside, not significantly, but for a growth fund, we thought that was, you know, with a higher beta, a bit sort of, you know, more leverage to the market, if you like, we thought that was quite positive. But then what you saw was this sort of extraordinary run um, of companies um, that actually did well um, from what was happening in terms of COVID. I mean, sort of the, the phrase COVID winners is um, somewhat unfortunate, I think. Um, but in terms of um, you know, some of the names we were seeing, you know, that that actually came out of this better, right? There was more demand for their services. You know, Microsoft, for example, that we own, um, you know, was going to do better because of Teams calls and you know, more people using their services. And that was a kind of a big acceleration, if you like, um, of um, sort of demand for, for some of these companies and what they were doing. Uh, and actually, you know, we captured that really well. Um, so I think, um, you know, on a year, um, on a, for the full year uh, of 2020, um, I think our fund was up uh, about 32%, I think, in um, GBP terms, um, you know, which was pretty amazing considering, you know, markets actually been pretty weak. Uh, and that's sort of the types of things we were looking at really played into that, right? The sort of the innovative companies, um, the companies that were actually, you know, could improve margin, do better through, you know, what was happening and the acceleration of, you know, the adoption of a lot of their business models was really positive. If you then roll forward and sort of look at the second part, which is, I, th I sort of touched on a bit earlier, which is the first, um, essentially up to about the middle of May this year, um, you saw a big reversal. Uh, so instead of the kind of the growth companies outperforming, you actually saw it was the value names outperforming those cyclical areas as you saw that reflation trade. So you saw lots of stimulus, you saw the reopening happening, and generally speaking, in that kind of recovery phase uh, of an economic cycle, that is what you would typically expect to see. Those companies that maybe the earnings had dropped and been those most weak would therefore coming back would have the strongest kind of earnings revisions. If you, like. you then had, you know, people expecting maybe the economy to run hot. You said everyone was really focused on inflation. Um, and that may be getting kind of out of hand, if you like, which, you know, if you had this sort of booming kind of economy, again, that would really help some of these kind of value and cyclical areas because they're just underlying would really kind of improve and they're kind of leveraged to that. That's the sort of scenario, generally speaking, we would expect to underperform uh, in because we're sort of a kind of quality growth uh, fund ultimately. And we did. Uh, however, we were really pleased actually that we kept up really quite well though. So we didn't underperform as much as your growth benchmark did. Um, and the reason that was, was actually uh, a lot of the kind of companies that were more growthy that had done really well were some of those names we would describe more as kind of hyper growth stocks. So stocks like you know the Pelotons of this world that did extraordinarily well, they baked in extremely high continued earnings growth, sort of forever sort of thing, or at least for, for a significant number of years. And so when that started to maybe not occur, you then had a sort of a pretty large distance to drop to get back to kind of more sort of realistic levels in terms of the earnings they were going to achieve. 
And that's an area that we generally avoid. So we try and avoid companies that are very hyped up at the very expensive valuations. So we managed to avoid some of the worst drawdowns um, through the early part of 2021, where we saw that kind of correction of some of these, what we describe as yeah, hyper growth stocks. Um, so actually our kind of quality growth stocks still continue to do quite well. And then we owned a number of names in, as I mentioned earlier, the semiconductor space, which are actually a little bit more cyclical, a lot better valuations. Uh, and actually they continue to go, uh, you know, perform extremely well through that period because the demand for their services was so strong. Uh, and therefore that really kind of was quite different. I think a big differentiator for our portfolio, that kind of large weighting to, to that particular area within technology, rather than just, as I say, some of those kind of software areas. So kind of, so ultimately it was sort of, yeah, 20, 2020 was sort of good for us coming out in the right areas. First part of uh, 2021, slightly more challenging for us, but actually keeping up quite well and avoiding some of the worst parts of the kind of the growth sell-off. Uh, and then we've seen a big shift um, since about mid-May. So it's only been the last sort of six weeks or so where all of a sudden the market is now saying, okay, maybe inflation isn't going to be quite as high as we think. Break-even rates are kind of lowering. Market participants are saying, okay, maybe it is going to be more transitory, a bit like the Fed are saying. So all of a sudden you're starting to see a bit of a moderation in rates and inflation. And that's been a real boon for, again, some of these kind of uh, more quality growth stocks like the Apples, like the Microsofts, like the Googles of this world, um, which we own you know, a lot of in our portfolio. Uh, and that's been a, a real positive. So over the sort of essentially from the middle part of the second quarter to today, the fund again has been performing you know, really quite strongly. Um, you know, this year we're now um, you know, a good few percent ahead of our benchmark. Um, having come out of it quite well. So we've been really quite pleased, really. It's sort of the, the fund has navigated really quite choppy markets um, pretty successfully, I think. And we've been particularly pleased uh, with how well it performed in the value rally um, at the beginning of this year for a growth portfolio. Um, I think that's been quite a big difference relative to some of our uh, growthy uh, global growth uh, fund competitors. So, so with that in mind, and... Uh... Obviously, there's a, a lot of moving parts there. And as we edge back to some kind of uh, real normality, um, what's your kind of outlook from here? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. Um, clearly, um, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. And, and as I say, you know, we're, we're very much focused on buying the right companies as opposed to trying to make a macro view of, you know, I think, you know, the Fed is going to do X, therefore we should buy Y. Um, you know, we, we generally you know, invest for the longer term. Uh, you know, our horizon is sort of five years investment horizon, if you like. Uh, and that's what we're buying companies across uh, in terms of when we're considering the, sort of the performance of, the, of how well we're doing. Um, so sort of near term moves aren't so important. However, we've got to be macro aware. We've got to be considerate of, of what's going on. And I, and I think, you know, kind of where we are is that generally speaking, um, you know, we have got a pretty positive economic backdrop, it appears. Um, the stimulus has clearly been very large. Um, it's clearly worked. Uh, and there are definitely, you know, positive signs in terms of, you know, broader economic indicators. Um, we've seen a moderation of some of the worst fears of inflation uh, coming off, I think, although that picture remains pretty mixed, I would suggest. Um, so although I think the market consensus was extremely strong, um, coming into that middle of May period, you know, it could be that you know what we've just seen in terms of that reversal was really kind of an unwinding of sentiment as opposed to necessarily a definite change in the economic outlook. Um, and you can just see it, you know, the Fed has a dual mandate. It's not just uh, inflation. They're also worried about 
you know, unemployment. So you've got to balance the two things out. Inflation might be higher, so we should raise rates, but actually employment still remains very high too. So what do we do about that? There's a balance. We saw CPI come out yesterday in the US. You know, clearly that's showing pretty strong inflation and the highest inflation rates we've seen uh, for multiple decades. Um, yet at the same time, you see things like lumber prices that had rocketed up now collapse again. So it's, it's very difficult to, you know, clearly see the path out. And then on top of all of that, you, you, know, you still have the virus, the Delta variant, you know, the next variant that may or may not come. And there's, you know, clearly that's going to play a part in, in what people are thinking. But if we take all of that together, um, I guess what we would say is it, it does look quite positive um, for the type of approach that we have. I mean, clearly we would say that, right? As fund managers, you, you generally talk your own book, right? But but I do, you know, genuinely that's sort of what we're, we're talking to clients about at the moment. It is that, you know, if you're in this sort of scenario, the kind of, let's assume from a sort of cycle point of view, you've kind of had the despair of the massive sell-off of the either COVID or what's happening, you've then seen the very sharp recovery, you're then moving into kind of the mid-cycle or growth phase, typically, and that is generally associated with companies doing better if they show consistent growth, because you don't tend to get the big multiple expansion anymore. So in the recovery phase, it's from a very low point, you just get better sentiment, so everything gets bid up in the expectations that earnings will come through. You then move into the next phase, you need to see those earnings to actually generate your sort of returns, if you like. Um, now, if if you are then looking around the market, you would say, well, actually, some of the cyclical, more value companies, they've had the high re-rating. Will their earnings really come through? Is the economy really strong enough to really drive that forward or not? Therefore, you might have got a lot of valuation risk there if it's not true. Um, I think if you look to the kind of, um, whereas if you look at what we're doing is, I think that kind of more consistent growth at reasonable valuations, so less valuation risk, less likely to get the multiple drawdown, the multiple contraction, and a more consistent earnings picture, I think looks really positive. Um, you know, we've got earnings seasons coming up now, um, and I think you know, I think that will show a, you know a lot. Um, you know, and if you've got some of these big tech companies still posting you know 15, 20, 25 percent type earnings growth, that's going to look really attractive and they're not trading evaluations that are extraordinarily high relative to those earnings coming through. Um, I think those are the types of places that you know, seem attractive to us uh, in terms of you know, where we are uh, in terms of sort of economic outlook today. Um, you know, our fund is you know, a little bit more expensive in the market. Uh, you know, it does trade at a premium, but the growth we're seeing from our overall portfolio far outstrips that premium. So on a kind of relative sort of what you're paying for the growth, it actually still looks very attractive. Fascinating times indeed, and uh, unfortunately, we, we've now run out of, out of time. So many thanks again for your time, Ian, and of those valuable insights. That's uh, Ian Mortimer, co-manager of the Guinness Global Innovators Fund. And thank you for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe. And of course, you can find much more, by the way, of investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now.